I just dropped off a 16-year-old to have her braces removed. So I'll slip out. I know. Big day. Big day. I gave her a pack of gum and a little, some goodies <laughs> for after the appointment. Glad you're here. One very important announcement is that next Wednesday, can you believe it? It's March 6th. It's Ash Wednesday. And so because of that, we will have a, if you have not ever attended an Ash Wednesday service here, I highly recommend it. It's so beautiful. So rather than Romans that day, morning or evening, we're observing Ash Wednesday, and I encourage you to come in the evening at 630. Um, So there you have it. That's the most important thing to keep in mind is next Wednesday, we will not have study in here in light of Ash Wednesday. Star has a couple of announcements for us. Church Women of Franklin is having the World Day of Prayer on Friday at 1 at St. Andrew Lutheran Church on the corner of Mac Hatcher and Murfreesboro Road. You're all welcome. Charlotte Green has helped me for years with this, and some other people have come. So anyway, here's a poster. Slovenia Women wrote it. Uh, it is a program followed by refreshments, and you're all welcome. And a great a Church Women of Franklin is about 47 years old, and it was the the forerunner of GraceWorks. They gave them everything. Money, $10,000. Yeah. Yeah. So it's still going. We're still going. We're still upright. There's a lot of us that are on canes and stuff. So, but anyway, anybody's welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Star. Thank you. Y'all, the star is so faithful in our midst in ways that you, we see and in many ways I know that you don't see. So value you. Thank you so much. Let's pray this morning. Father, I thank you so much for your goodness, for your faithfulness to us, for your love for us, for your attention to us, for your living word that you gave us, that we would know you and love you. And I pray, Lord, as we have come toward the end of this incredible letter, that you would continue to teach us. I know that we will not exhaust the understanding, and I'm actually grateful all my life, Lord, I pray that I would commit to understanding what it is that you have. And uh, even in heaven, we will not exhaust the understanding of your infinite mercies, grace, wisdom. I pray for David as he comes and teaches us. I pray for a refreshing. I thank you for him. Um, We give you this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Diane. Good morning, everyone. So let's turn to Romans 14. And you're going to want to be on page 28 and 29 in your study guide. I'll reiterate what Diana said about uh, next week. It's a beautiful service in the evening. And I hope you can, hope you can join us. It's a great time. Uh, so we last week spent quite a bit of time as an overview uh, of Romans 14 and 15. And if you missed last week, I would encourage you strongly to go back and pick up on that particular talk. Uh, and so that you, you have a sort of framework for the more detailed discussion that we're, we're digging down into today. So we, we looked at this issue of the strong and the weak, that language that Paul was referring to, and how he uses that language in Romans and in 1 Corinthians. Remember, he's writing from Corinth to Rome. And those designations are used in both places but about two different kinds of people, two different situations. So do bear that in mind as you read through Corinthians and as you 
read through Romans. And now what we want to do is turn our attention to these first 12 verses here in chapter 14 and dig down into those. So I'm just going to read them, invite you to follow along. I'm reading from the NAS. You may have a, a, a different version, but it'll be close. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. You're all laughing at that. You love that verse, don't you? You could say the reason he's weak is because he is only eating vegetables only, but uh, that, that would be to misunderstand both vegetables and weakness. So there we are. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And stand he will. For the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself. And not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. I like the King James Version of the beginning of this chapter. Him that is weak in faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. I love that kind of language. What is Paul really getting at here? Well, in a certain way, it's could we all please get along? This is Paul appealing to this combined Jewish-Gentile community of believers and saying, let's take some of the cultural things which and religious things which have kept you apart and let's make sure that those things which have historically kept you apart do not become the kind of thing by which you judge each other, number one, and number two, that they do not continue to be barriers to your fellowship. I mean, obviously, if you have a judgmental attitude towards someone, that would create barriers. So let's take away this view that people have of one another in the church at Rome, which is negative. Let's remove that. 
And let's make sure that in doing so then we're creating or promoting, perhaps would be the better word, we're promoting that sense of family and community in the body of Christ, which is necessary for the the beauty of Jesus to be seen in the world at Rome because the testimony of the way you love one another verifies the reality of who Jesus is in the world. So our call to love one another is paramount. This, of course, has already been covered in chapter 13, this issue of love for one another, love for neighbor, and so on. What does that look like? And so on. Well, now Paul is going to drill down into these particular areas. And what he says is this. Strong people. And in Rome, the strong are those who are looking at sacred days or particular foods and regarding the days as being not particularly important. Sacred days from uh, the Jewish past are not particularly important. And uh, all foods are clean. I can eat whatever I want and so on. So this is, this is, these are the strong. And he says, now, if you're convinced of that, what about your brother who is not yet convinced of that? If he is not yet convinced of that, is he any less your brother or your sister? And of course, Paul's answer to that is what? No, that's your brother or your sister. And so he says to the strong, for the sake of the weak, that they are to receive each other. And a word that keeps coming up throughout this passage is the word judgment. Look at verse 3. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Or again in verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Why do you regard your brother with contempt? Verse 13, which we didn't get to, but it's where this word occurs again. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. So the issue is looking upon one another with contempt, judging the other based on practices which are not central So one person believes he may eat anything, that would be the strong person. The other person believes that he may only eat vegetables, that would be the weak person. On sacred days, some days are more sacred than others, that's the position of the weak. All days are exactly the same, that's the position of the strong. So what general principles are outlined for us here? Well, first... Neither may despise, and that word for contempt there means regard as nothings, to look upon your brother and sister and regard them as a nothing. No one may judge the other in regard to eating or abstaining, because God has extended hospitality to both. When you come to this table... Is this a Presbyterian table? We occasionally talk about this, right? Is this a Presbyterian table? No. What kind of table is it? It's the Lord's table. It's his feast. Uh, That's why 
Who is welcome at the table? All who are the Lord's. Now, there's an old word for this, Catholicity. Catholicity, which has to do with universal, which has to do with all-inclusive, which says that all who, this is Paul's language in 1 Corinthians, all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a polygamist. He has one bride, and we are all part of it. And so when we come to the Lord's table, we do not gather around the table as Baptists or Presbyterians. We don't gather around the table as Methodists. We are here as the Lord's. So if you are accepted at the Lord's table, let's do a little comparison. What about your table? Now, what do I mean by comparison? Whose table is higher, the Lord's table or your table? That would be the Lord's table. This is not hard, even if you've not had a lot of coffee yet, okay? Yeah, I know, mind-blowing, okay. So Paul's principle is this. If the person is welcomed by Jesus, if Jesus extends hospitality to this person, this person is at my table, how can you? possibly say that person cannot be at my table if the highest table in the universe the highest table imaginable has room for that person how can you at your table exclude them how can you look upon someone that God calls a son, a daughter, and say they are a nothing. Can't do that. Now, Paul's addressing this not to unbelievers, but to Christians. It's important for us to recognize that this was a struggle. It was a struggle because of their religious background, because of their cultural background. This is a human proclivity. It's just as strong then as now. We too are tempted to look upon some people and say, well, they're beneath me. I can't fellowship with them. Those people, and we're talking about Christians, these other Christians, because of whatever it is, they can't be at my And Paul says that cuts against the grain of everything that the gospel has done. He says that God has welcomed people. So judgment at the feast belongs exclusively to the master of the feast. If you put down the other or make them stumble, the Lord who is the judge and host will raise him up and give him the strength to stand. This is what is is really just summarized as what I would call Eucharistic living. Now here, this is where weekly communion or the weekly Eucharist, I'm just going to talk about that a little minute, uh, begins to reshape our imagination and re-illumine the basis of our friendships and fellowship. I want you to look at it in verse 6. In verse 6, 
He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. For he what? Gives thanks. Bear that in mind. To God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. Now, the Greek word for thanksgiving, giving thanks, is Eucharistos. Eucharist, giving thanks. That is the term the ancient Christians used to describe this table, the Lord's table, Eucharist. You still, if you were raised in an Anglican or Episcopalian, Catholic setting, sometimes a Lutheran setting, you'll have heard the term the Eucharist. Protestants sometimes use the term, and independent churches tend to sometimes use the term the Lord's Supper or communion. All of those are valid names, but sometimes people get a little uncomfortable with the term Eucharist because they go, I don't know, that I'm, I don't know what that word means. Well, let's, let's know what that word means. Thanksgiving, giving thanks, Eucharistos. Why is the supper called a thanksgiving? Okay, on the night in which he was betrayed, I'll bet you you've heard these words so often now you can finish them. On the night in which he was betrayed, the Lord took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. So when I'm at the table and I'm administering the sacrament, I would say to those who are gathered at the table, a word of blessing, and then I would say, with thankful hearts, take and eat and take and drink. Because the primary, the primary aspect of worship at the table is Thanksgiving. It is the great feast of Thanksgiving. The historically liturgical prayer that's prayed at the table, well, there are two. One is called the Epiclesis, which is a prayer for the Holy Spirit to be upon the the gifts, the bread and the wine, and the people. Uh, Pour out your spirit on these people and these gifts that we through faith may have true communion in the body and blood of Christ but also the great thanksgiving. We don't include that in our little liturgy. I wish we did, but I've done the best I can. So there we are. All right. So, so what would I, how would that go? Well, follow along with me. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. You guys got this. Okay, this is good. This is good. All right. We lift them up to the Lord. That's called the sursum corda, the lifting up of the heart. So, uh, okay. Um, then something we typically don't say, uh, the, the leader of the service would say, uh, let us give thanks to the Lord. And the congregation would say, it is good and right to do so. All right, so some of you may remember that language. It is good and right to do so. And then the leader of the service would give a great prayer of thanksgiving. It is truly good, right, or in the, when I was growing up, meat, right, and salutary, which I used to think was sanitary. But anyway, it was, but it's truly good and right that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Holy Lord, Father Almighty, everlasting God, who through the gift of your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, did bestow upon us and all who call upon him the gift of eternal life. And then St. Ambrose wrote a whole bunch of other prayers that go along with that, and they sort of vary from Sunday to Sunday. Anyway, it's great stuff. Anyway, so it's called the Great Thanksgiving. This word that Paul's using here, thanksgiving, they're giving thanks, Eucharistic. They are living Eucharistically. Now, 
Paul is deeply aware that the feast of Thanksgiving, the weekly feast of God's people around the table, is the thing which unites these people. This person eats. This person doesn't eat these things. But at the table, what do both do? Take and eat and take and drink. So here, they're unified. Here, they're unified. And therefore, you cannot with anyone else with, with Eucharistic fellowship say, you are a nothing and you are not part of my life. So because we come to this table, this table reshapes our imagination and our understanding of the people with whom we are in communion. And you cannot look upon another person, no matter their race or their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, and despise that person. You cannot look upon another person and go, well, that person, that person doesn't, you know, that person keeps certain holy days. Well, and I don't want to do that. So they're in a different, they're, you know, they're, I don't want to have any fellowship with them. Well, you can't do that. You see, well, that person drinks wine, so I can't have any fellowship with them. Uh, or that person doesn't drink any beer, so I can't have any fellowship with them. They're clearly not reformed, because if they were reformed, there'd be cigars and beer, so there. So you see, all these kinds of matters are things which divide people. But this is a table of unity, and this is what controls our thinking about it. So in Eucharistic living, both give thanks One gives thanks by abstaining, the other by indulging. But both have in view the honor of God. Judgment at the end is what should shape our welcome of each other now. You see, Paul says that we are going to all stand before God. So, verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, here he is in this diatribe fashion, this um, conversation, this, with this, this interactive conversation he's having. You again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. All right, so will there be judgment? Will there be accountability? The answer to that is what? Yes, and for who? For all of us. What Paul's saying is this, don't fast forward into the present something that belongs to the future, number one. And number two, don't take to yourself a task which belongs to God alone. If you try to do God's job, God will see to it that you are unemployed. (laughs) So he will say, I'm the judge. I alone am the judge. You are not allowed to sit on this throne and act in this way. So the giving of thanks in the life that is lived is the thing which matters in the fellowship of believers. The shape of salvation in life is not living as one pleases, but living to please God. The kingdom of God is the obliteration of the kingdom of self-interest and self-promotion. 
especially at the expense of another. Christ has eradicated self-centered living as an option for believers. Look at this in verse 7. Not one of us lives for himself. Not one of us dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. If a person is healthy, vibrant, that health and vitality and strength is unto the Lord. If a person is suffering and dying, and we will all die, barring the return of Christ, the suffering... You see, if you saw somebody who was... Let's get straight about this. If you saw somebody who was full of life and vitality and strength, you you would say, you need to serve the Lord with that gift. But if you see somebody who's suffering and dying, does it occur to you to say, you need to serve the Lord with your death, with your dying? That's not how we first view it. We tend to think, well, we need to pray for for the person to be utterly and completely delivered from all of this. Well, it's good to pray for healing. And sometimes God does heal. Sometimes he doesn't. And when there isn't healing, when a person is dying, can a person who is dying serve God? And the answer to that is yes, even if they are not aware of it. They can, by the intention of their heart as they enter into that season, that final season, say, Lord, I will serve you in my death. Now, for some people, that looks like a martyr's death. Paul knows he's going to die. He's going to lose his head to a Roman sword. And so you could say, well, he's serving God with his death. But for others, they go through a long period of suffering and disease. Are they able to offer that up to God? Yes, they can. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And while we live, we do not judge each other as how we're living unto the Lord by imposing on each other standards of conduct which are not central to the gospel. If a person says, this is, this is how I live my life in Christ, right? You go, okay, that's not how I would live it, but you're my what? You're my brother, you're my sister. Okay, so the legalist wants to take the wisdom that's been given to them and impose it on others. That we resist. All right. The antinomian, the person who says there are no standards, says nothing matters, do whatever you please. But that goes against not living for self, but for Christ. So the question all of us ask is this, how do I live and die not to myself, but to God. I want you to think about this because this cuts against the grain of our contemporary culture at its deepest root. Our current culture thrives. Whole industries are built on the assertion that self-actualization and self-fulfillment are all that matter. You be you. You must achieve. You must give vent to your passions and desires. But Paul says for the Christian, none of us lives for himself. None of us even dies for himself. For the believer, and this goes back to Romans 12, 1 and 2. 
I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. So because we are the Lord's, our life is now a sacrifice. It belongs to him. So for the Christian, living for self, pursue your dream, do what's in your heart, that kind of talk is absolutely out of court for the Christian. But it is the fundamental root of Western culture today. The fulfillment of self. God just wants me to be happy. I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody has said that to me. I would have the student center paid for already. God just wants me to be happy. Well, I suppose God might be pleased if you're happy, but actually, I hate to break it to you, having read a little church history, God actually ordained severe levels of unhappiness for lots of faithful people. And it was via their unhappiness that the kingdom went forward. So I hate to break it to you, but God is more interested in your holiness than your happiness. Happy is overrated in the kingdom. And so living for self is the impulse of the culture. Living for Christ is the impulse of the Christian. And so none of us live for himself. So none of us dies for ourselves. If we, in life we belong to the Lord, in death we belong to the Lord. And this means that life is not ultimate and death is not final. You see... If you live only for yourself, then you treat life as ultimate. I must get out of life everything that I can. I must squeeze out of every moment every last drop of meaning. I must get from it every bit of passion that there is. I can't waste a moment. Wait wait a minute. See, if life is all there is, you're right. Because, baby, you're not coming back. Uh, as Winston Churchill said about reincarnation, no thank you, once is enough. Um, <laughs> that's enough of that, okay? But but if you, th- oh, if you go, well, that's it, you know, that's it. I mean, when you die, that's it. You know, you're just, you're just rotten in the ground, you're just fertilizer for the cabbages, that's it. Okay, then by all means, you see, eat, drink, and be merry, Why? Tomorrow we die. All right, that's great. But for the Christian, life is not ultimate. And death is not final. That's not the final end. In fact, life in Christ, and Diana was alluding to this in her opening prayer, will remain part of our pursuit of knowing God. Uh, What's the first thing you're going to do when you get to heaven? I'm signing up for Paul's class on Romans. That's what I'm doing. That's, I'm gonna, I got some questions for you, all right? So we'll spend eternity in the pursuit of the knowledge of God. So for us, our life is not, is not shaped by this mad pursuit of pleasure and power. And I've got to fulfill everything and I've got to get it all done. I can't rest. I can't be at peace. I can't contemplate the beauty of Christ. I can't take time to read scripture. I'm, I'm on the move. I've got to make it happen. no. No, life for us is not ultimate and death is not final. What is final 
is our accountability to God before his judgment throne. And since he welcomes us now and on that day, we live and welcome one another. We welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. And we do not please ourselves, but others. Look at this welcome and pleasing aspect as it's reflected a little bit further on here in Romans in chapter 15. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. A text we'll come back to in a bit more detail, but you can see this is a good summary statement of what I've been saying. We who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell on me. So Christ did not live for himself, but he loved us as his neighbors, as his brothers and sisters and laid down his life for us. So what happens is we begin not to judge each other, but to seek the good of one another. Now, this is in keeping what Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 10. And I want you to come over there with me and just look at a couple of verses here. 1 Corinthians 10, in verses 23 through 33. How do we treat each other? What do we, and, this is, and how, does, how does living in communion reshape how we treat each other? Let's look at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful. Okay, what's that position, the weak or the strong? Okay, that's, that's the strong. Okay, I, okay, all things are lawful. That's kind of St. Augustine, love God and do what you want. Right, that's kind of the basis of that, that, that sort of thought. All things are lawful, not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market, without asking questions for conscience sake for the earth is the lord's and all it contains and so the cow that you're going to eat that burger you're about to have yes it was sacrificed to apollo down the street but it came from a cow that belongs to yahweh so have the burger have the curry i know that the chicken korma was was made in a sauce that was according to a recipe that was fashioned for the worship of Kali. But have no fear, the curry was invented by Yahweh. Pass the rice. That, in other words, all things belong to God. So this is the position of the strong. But, but it's not about pleasing yourself. It's looking for the edification of one's neighbor. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. In other words, if you go to the house of an unbeliever, you Corinthians, and of course the problem here is that the meat sacrificed to idols in the temple, not Jewish food laws, which is what's going on in Romans. So again, same principle, different situation. And, and uh, uh, you go to somebody's house and they, they put the steak in front of you. You don't go, so uh, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Uh, was the uh, was the pork loin here, you know, sacrificed to Athena or not? Right? That's not the question you ask. Right? It, 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 Paul says, if you get the pork loin, what do you do? Shut up and eat. 
That's what he says. Just eat it. Okay. Don't ask any questions. All right. Beyond, do you have any salt? I mean, that's it. Don't, don't ask about points of origin. All right. That's, that's, you know, but if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? I want you to note that. Why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? Now, see, sometimes what people do is they say this whole issue of freedom and conscience and so on has to do with uh, uh, somebody saying they're free enough to have a beer and somebody can't. So don't have the beer because you don't want to offend the other person. Okay, I get that. But look at this too. There's a there's a judge there's also the potential for the person who refuses to have the beer to judge the person who's free enough to do so. Why is my freedom judged by the other person's conscience? In other words, judgmentalism can belong to both sides of that discussion. And judgmentalism has to be banished from our heart. Okay? That has to go. It's not the basis of our fellowship. If I partake with what? Thankfulness. That's Eucharistic living, see? Why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense, either to Jews or Greeks, to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many that they may be saved. The crucial issue is that our lives are given over to the progress of the gospel. What moves the gospel forward? That's the question to ask. What moves the gospel forward? And that becomes the primary ethic. So down at the bottom of page 29 on your study guide there, I wrote down a few things here. We must not demand others observe as we do. Underline the word demand. We must not demand it. We must not demand that others abstain as we do. And we must not use our liberty as a way of exalting ourselves as the strong. Now, this is a way of living that embraces what I've called on the next page the theology of weakness. Paul's pretty clearly identified himself as one of the strong. But there's an irony in that. Because what Paul does is care for the weak. He does not take the course of the so-called strong. He is magnifying a theology of weakness by identifying with the weak when no one was stronger than Paul. How is this possible for him? So imagine Paul hearing a believer in Corinth or Rome refer to himself as strong. I'm one of the strong. To a fellow believer, oh, they're so weak, making him a nothing. Well, what does Paul already know about weakness? You see, if somebody, if he heard, overheard somebody in the congregation in Corinth, or if he'd gone to Rome and he heard somebody in Rome in the church there refer to another Christian as they're weak. Think about how that would process in Paul's head for a second. What do we already know about Paul and weakness? Well, we know what he wrote to the Corinthians about it. God has chosen the weak. So if a person says, I'm looking down on a brother or a sister and I regard them as weak, Paul goes, wait a minute. God has 
chosen the weak, not the strong. So be careful. If if you're chosen by God, how many of you would say you're chosen by God? About six of you. Okay, that's good. All right. Chosen by God. Okay, I'm chosen by God. That automatically qualifies you as what? Weak, even if you think you're strong. You're actually one of the weak. God has chosen the foolish. That automatically makes you what? A fool. I had an email yesterday from my publishing house saying that my book was going to be released on April 1st. And I said, that was perfect. It's the perfect day for a release of a book by me. (laughs) All right. Secondly, God's power is made perfect in weakness. Paul has said, I've learned this, that when I am weak, God's power is being shown through me. When I'm weak, I'm strong because the power of Christ is filling my weakness. So this entire designation of the strong and the weak, that kind of thinking is what Paul is looking to subvert. He wants to undermine it. You can't go on seeing each other in these terms. So Paul identifies as an apostle with both the weak and the strong. To reject either is to reject him. More significantly, to despise a brother is to, descri- is, to de- is to despise Christ. And now here, I want to make a point on Reformed theology. Um, sometimes when people say, well, you're Reformed, what does that really mean? And this is, there are a number of things you can go to on that. But 